Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. You know, you're an actor, I'm sure. You had a few ideas on the set, and writers are somewhat reluctant to hear what an actor has to say. And I'm the go-between. I would always say to the cast, they worked hard on this script, those writers. You got to show it to them as written. And then you can show them what we've done down here. And let them pick. There are no egos. If they don't like it, what we've done, okay, we'll do it their way. Or maybe what we've done on stage will enable them to take the script back upstairs and rewrite it in a different way. That's James Burroughs. He's written a book called Directed by James Burroughs, which is a credit you've probably seen many times because he's directed some of the most loved comedies on television. A thousand or more episodes of Cheers, Taxi, Friends, Frasier, Will and Grace, The Big Bang Theory, and many others, and many of them for hit shows he helped create. I was curious about how he did it, and we both had fun comparing notes on our adventures in television comedy. We both come from families that go so far back in comedy, we weren't even sure when we met. This is going to be great, because I don't know really when I first met you, but I think it was a long time ago, and we're finally getting together again. Were you at the opening night of Guys and Dolls on Broadway? I don't think I was at the opening night, no. Because that's where we would have met for the first time. Your your dad, Abe Burroughs, wrote Guys and Dolls, and my father acted in it. I know. I I know. I know I saw it, but I was, uh, I, w- I would have been 11, so I'm not sure I went to the opening of that. Yeah, I'm a little older than you. I was 15. Uh-huh. And you were absorbing your father's work at a young age, and so was I absorbing my father's work. I stood in the wings and watched Guys and Dolls for two years, twice every Saturday. What a great show. It was, and it was beautifully written by your father. Did he give you advice throughout your early years? Uh, No, because I had no aspirations to be in show business at all. Uh, My father would trundle my sister and I to rehearsals, and, uh, you know, we saw, I remember seeing Guys and Dolls, but uh, I had no aspirations to be in show business whatsoever. But he, he actually wanted you to be in show business, didn't he? But he never pushed me, you know, because he was a legend in New York City, and uh, there was no way I was going to try to compete with that legend. So I was just Abe's kid growing up, and uh, until I went to the Yale School of Drama, I really had no idea that I would end up in show business. And you began stage managing shows, assistant stage managing. Was that your early experience? Yeah, I was um, the assistant stage manager on my dad's ill-fated musical called Breakfast at Tiffany's. And that's where you met Mary Tyler Moore? That is. She she and Richard Chamberlain 
and Sally Kellerman were the three stars, and I was in charge of them. I had nothing to do with uh, calling the show or, you know, coordinating scenery or anything like that. I was the assistant to the assistant, so my job was to make sure that Mary and Dick and Sally knew where they had to be when they were on stage, when 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 they were about to enter, and when they came off, I was there to to uh, to make sure they got back to their dressing rooms because they were neophytes, and I also was in charge of getting their lunches and their dinners when appropriate. So that I was just really a, a Hollywood star wrangler. So, so you you were able you got to know Mary well enough that you were able to write her a letter a few years later. When you wanted yeah. to, you wanted to start directing in television, right? Right. The Breakfast at Tiffany's was a huge fiasco, and we played four previews on Broadway, and they we were hooted and hollered off the stage. And Mary they, was the audience actually hooted. You want so, audience participation, but not yeah. that kind. <laughs> I know. And so Mary would come off crying. She was so devastated. So I would meet her in the wings. She would cry on my shoulder. We became you know, lifeboat members together. I stayed with her on the Wednesday night of the final show until Grant Tinker came. Mary's husband. Mary's husband then. That's how we met. And so I went off after that, and I stage managed a few times more, and I started doing a lot of summer stock and dinner theater. But but interests me that you made that step you, to write a letter to Mary because her show was a hit by now. What went through your head? Did you think, is this too forward of me? Or what, what were you thinking as you, as you composed the letter? I was in Wallingford, Connecticut, directing a production of 40 Carats with Joan Fontaine. And I went uh, home one Saturday night after rehearsal, and I turned on the TV, and there was the Mary Tyler Moore show. I had never, I had never seen it before. And um, I looked at it, and I said, wow, there's an audience laughing. So that's a that's a theatrical piece that's being filmed. So I thought to myself, why don't I write her a letter? Because I was doing a two-hour play in a week, and they were doing 25 minutes in a week, and I thought I could do that. Uh, and I wrote her a letter, and I about two weeks later, uh, after I came back from directing somewhere else in some other dinner theater, uh, I got a, a letter from Grant Tinker. And Grant said, we're interested in theatrical directors. And MTM at that time had four multi-camera sitcoms on the air, which was, you know, it's theater that's being filmed. In front of a live audience. Yeah. They, they brought me out to do one show. This was now your big chance to register, to go from dinner theater and stage <laughs> managing, to now prove yourself with this one show. What was that like? I was I was petrified. Uh, you know, I, I had watched the show because I had become friendly with Jay Sandridge, who you knew, and uh, he, he was your dear friend. I know you and I Arlene. I know, a very dear friend, and, and that's where we you and I met. Yes. You know, I would watch Jay work, and I would, he would take me to lunch, and I would ask him questions. We became quite close friends because the day I met him— he had a wedding ring on. The next day when I came to see a show, he didn't have one on. So he was just getting divorced. So I guess 
I was his his new friend at that point. Mm. And uh, so I got this Mary Tyler Moore script. We read it around the table. And I said to Artie Price, who then was second in command at MTM, I said, in a sea of Danish, I get a bagel. The script was no good. It was, it was, it was a terror. It was, it was not a, not a good script at all. So this is the one you've got to prove yourself on. I know. So back in those days, uh, you would read the script and then you would immediately go and rehearse. We'd read the script, then I go down and rehearse stuff that I knew would never be in the show, but I had to do it. And while I was doing it, the writers were rewriting. And so later in the day, I would get the new version of the old script that I that I rehearsed, and I would have to do the new script, and there would be run-throughs and rewrites, and I did everything. I put, I tried to put as much physical business into it as I could, and the show was maybe a C minus when uh, we read it, and it became a C plus. <laughs> but just before we shot the show, I was walking uh, backstage. And Mary came out of her trailer and looked at me and said, we feel our investment in you has worked out. So I was, I was blown away by that. Somehow that combination of your own ability to do that and the encouragement you got went from that C minus show you just as you just described it to directing some a thousand episodes of television, is that correct? That's over a thousand now. Yeah. And what impresses me even more than that is I think I read that seventy-five of the pilots you directed went on to become series. Did I have that uh, right? Yes, I think that's about it. That's amazing. I mean, if somebody gets one pilot picked up, it's <laughs> a big deal. Well, I'm, you know, uh, they weren't all successful, all 75 of them. They, you know, a, a couple of them, you know, like maybe 15 to 20 were really successful. The rest, I, I'm really good with smoke and mirrors. So, you know, I can take stuff that's okay and make it good. Uh. I can't, I can't make it great, but, uh, you know, I can help. Uh, you know, with some of the writing and uh, with physical pieces of business and and uh, getting the actors to bond as a troupe because if they love one another as actors in this particular situation, that's going to come across on the air. I read in your book that you said when the cast of Friends came together for the first time, it looked like they'd known each other all their lives. How how did you get that to happen? Well, you, you know about that. You know about that, too, from MASH. Yeah. You know, it's the same with True Cheers. I knew right away. I knew I knew when I stepped on a rehearsal stage and uh, we started rehearsing that everybody was playing in the same uh, in the same uh, league. Right. I, you know, I uh, I knew that there. I knew it in Friends. The six of them were just kind of all the, the ages were all the same but they were they were magnificent with one another and incredibly creative and uh 
I, I let them create. I'm, uh, you know, you're an actor, I'm sure. You had a few ideas on the set. Uh, and, you know, writers are somewhat reluctant to hear what an actor has to say. And I'm the go-between. The writers are saying up in the writing room, why don't they act it the way we wrote it? <laughs> and down on the stage, the actors are saying, who wrote this crap? <laughs> it's so true. I mean, I would always say to the cast, they worked hard on this script, those writers. You got to show it to them as written. Uh, and first. then once first, and then you can show them what we've done down here and let them pick. Oh, oh, we don't stand. There are no egos. If they don't like it, what we've done. OK, we'll do it their way. Or maybe what we've done on stage will enable them to take the script back upstairs and rewrite it in a different way. So uh, there were no never egos once uh, once cheers happened. There's a moment in shows of that kind, four-camera shows, where at the last rehearsal, there can't be any egos because everybody's called to the bar. Right, to the rail. The rail. Yeah. yeah the, the rail, you're at the railing between you and the empty audience seats that are now filled in the front row by the writers and the producers. <laughs> and they call out complaints to the actors. <laughs> yes, they do. But... When I, on my shows, uh, the actors can call out complaints to the writers. Uh, that's good. That was on MASH, too. Gene Reynolds, at the end of the f table read, the first reading where we sat around the table reading the show for the first time, the actors were expected to raise questions about the script, the story, the uh, given line. And sometimes it would be some, quite some time taken up in wrangling having the chance to voice your worry put us more in touch with one another and it gave us a little more chance to cooperate together. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's it's an important pro part of the process because you guys, you inhabit those characters. I mean, on Cheers, we would, at the end of every season, we would have Ted and Shelley come up to the room and talk to us about their relationship, what mm. they felt, what they felt, where it was going, what they felt working with one another, how they felt about each other's character. And we would, you know, take that all in. And then the boys would go off and and write, write the arc of the next season. So they are, they are, actors are valuable. At a certain point, the actors have given so much thought and experienced so much playing the character that they have a perspective that the writers can benefit from. Yes. Not that they not that they know more about the character, but they had they know it from a certain angle that the writer can't know. A absolutely, and that's that's what I try to facilitate. You know, I, I want a writer to defend his material. I don't want him to be defensive about it. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's well put. You mentioned technical considerations before, and I wonder if our listeners, as aware as we as we are of the difference between a four-camera show on tape compared to one camera shot like a movie. Three cameras. Three, three cameras. <laughs> of, 
No, that's the difference. <laughs> no, <laughs> I missed the joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> you got you to bring me up to the rail. <laughs> uh, a one-camera show, as you know, which MASH was, you would shoot the master, which is a, a two or three shot of everybody in the scene. And then you would go again, you would shoot a close-up of the first person, close-up of the second person, a close-up of the third person, in the same scene. And then you would shoot a two-shot if you needed it, and then you would shoot reactions if you needed it. So on a, on a multi-camera show, a four-camera show, you shoot the entire scene with four cameras, which means that I have to capture the all the dialogue and all the reaction shots. At once. In, well, at once. And maneuvering four television cameras around the soundstage is not as easy as it sounds. The first time I directed a show with four cameras, I didn't realize how hard it was going to be. <laughs> and the night before we were going to shoot, when the audience would be there and everything would be supposed to be in tip-top condition, I said to the assistant director, I think we need to sit down and work out because... These cameras can't roll over one another's cables. Right. And that suddenly became important to me, and I hadn't thought about it. <laughs> I said, can you help me figure this out? He said, oh, I have a dinner engagement tonight. So, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, no. So, I, was, I was improvising the next day. That's why I watched for so long. Well, I was prepared, but still, it took a while. As you know, with four cameras, it... You want to make sure you get the joke in the first pass, because the <laughs> second time you do a joke, if you have to reshoot it... The audience has already heard it. Yeah. I love the story of the moment when you were shooting the show, this first show that everything depended on, and Lou Grant comes in the room, and I think Murray has a line, and he forgets the line. And you said, all right, let's pick it up on Murray's line. And what happened next? I said, let's pick it up on Mari's line. And all of a sudden, I heard on the PA, which is the public, uh, uh, public address system, I heard, take it back to Lou's entrance. And I thought, oh, my God, God is talking to me. <laughs> and that was Jay Sandwich saving your life. I looked up in the booth, and unbeknownst to me, Jay Sandridge had shown up for my show and didn't tell me. And, and, and explain why he was, how he was saving you. What, what was the difference between starting back at Lou's line and Murray's line? Because if, if I start on Murray's line, I can't cut the show because Lou would suddenly jump on screen. Right. And so, you know, Jay saved me there. And uh, I'll never forget it. I... Uh, uh, I, I talk about it when when Jay was inducted into the Television Academy Hall of Fame. I mentioned that story because it was so it was so monumental to me. When we come back from our break, James Burroughs and I compare notes on how our breakthrough shows, Cheers and Mash, went from near cancellation to long running hits. 
Hard to believe we've done more than 200 episodes of Clear and Vivid, which is over 200 reasons to support the show on Patreon.com. Here are three more. One, the proceeds from sponsors and donors support the nonprofit Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, training people around the world to be better communicators. Two, at the highest level of support, you're invited to join the monthly video chat with me and other donors. And three, if you're interested, I'll record your voicemail message. Either a plain vanilla one, Betty can't come to the phone right now, but leave your name and number, you know, like that. Or one with some snark in it. Hi, this is Alan Alda. Betty has no interest in talking on the phone right now. Probably busy listening to my podcast. But leave your name and number and it's entirely possible you'll get a call back. Just a touch of healthy indifference for your loved ones. Go to patreon.com slash clear and vivid. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash clear and vivid. And thank you. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So... No, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with James Burroughs. I was really interested to see in your book that Cheers at the beginning was near the bottom of the ratings. That was exactly what happened to us on MASH. I used to tell people we're in the top 72. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it, it it turns around. What what was what why what happened on Cheers, do you know? Well, because it both, became a, a a national event when by the time the series ended. Right. Both Mash and Cheers uh there was absolutely no reason to watch them. Because you didn't know who was in them. Nobody was a star in your show, and nobody was a star in Cheers. The only, you had a movie going for you. Mm. We didn't have that. And, and back there in the television, there was no internet. You know, it took a while for shows to to catch on because people had to be shopping in a soup. People who watch the show had to be shopping in a supermarket and saying, uh, hey, Louie, I saw the show last night. Mm. Maybe you should tune it in. So, as with MASH and Cheers, we, there was no reason to watch. We were slotted after Taxi on 9 o'clock on Thursday night. Uh, and, uh, you know, Taxi was a fading show then. And there was no reason to watch us. And uh, we were opposite Simon and Simon, which was a very popular show that followed Magnum P.I. And Tommy Selleck back then was a huge star on television. So there was no reason to watch the show. And literally on Thanksgiving of that year, we were 77th out of 77 shows. Mm, and then, well, first of all, we had two big fans. three Actually, three. The Press, 
The, the press loved Cheers. Grant Tinker was at MTM then, and Grant Tinker gave myself and the Charles brothers, my partners on Cheers, both our shots in getting into the business. And Brandon Tartikoff was at, uh, was at NBC, and they were big fans of the show. Plus, they'll tell you they had nothing else. <laughs> so uh, they kept us on, and then in the summer reruns, People had already seen Magnum P.I. and uh, Simon and Simon, so they tried other shows. That's what happened to us. So we we finished ninth one week in the summer, and uh, we we started to gain a little traction. New shows that don't have an element in them that the public already knows about, especially when they have inherent quality, have a hard time. I think Mary Tyler Moore and All in the Family both almost were. I think All in the Family was canceled. Yeah, maybe, yeah. And they had to bring them back. Yeah, there's no reason to watch them. But I have made my career on shows like that where there's nobody in it, you know. Mm. Because when people tune in, discover the character, and then make them famous, the audience feels a proprietary interest in creating that hit show. Mm, that's interesting. Because they tuned in and came on Moss to watch the show and, and made the show a success. So there's a proprietary interest in it. And uh, so that's why, you know, I think 98 of the, 98% of the shows I've ever done have never really had any big stars in them. You said in the book that doing the Mary Tyler Moore show was like going to college, but doing taxi was graduate school, <laughs> and that it was hard to do. Why, why was it hard? Why was it hard compared to the Mary Tyler Moore show? Well, I had a cast. There was some interplanetary people in the cast of Taxi. <laughs> interplanetary uh, people. <laughs> there was not—the uh, group wasn't— as cohesive because they came from different parts of the entertainment spectrum. I see. Judd and Mary Lou and Jeff Conaway were on Broadway, as was Danny. Danny was in the original Cuckoo's Nest on Broadway. So was Chris Lloyd. But uh, Andy Kaufman was a stand-up comic. Tony Danza was a boxer. You know, trying to unite them and to get them all into one lifeboat was really hard. Plus the writers, um, Jim, Ed, Jim Brooks, Ed Weinberger, Dave Davis, and Stan Daniels. Jim at that point was doing a movie, uh, so he was only there on certain days, and Ed was there all the time. And sometimes they didn't disagree. Sometimes they would disagree on the rewrites, and then you'd rewrite according to Jim. Wow, <laughs> you rewrite according to Jim, and then. Ed would change stuff, and then Jim would see it, and he said, so the Charles brothers, who were then producing it, also had a difficult time. It turned out to be a wonderful show. There are some episodes of that show that are seminal, seminal TV. I mean, uh, Reverend Jim becoming a cab driver, and what does the yellow light mean? Uh, it will go down in history as maybe one of the funniest scenes ever shot. And technically, you had the problem of so many characters. 
the problem of capturing a moment that affects a number of people and you only have four cameras in front of an audience to do it. It's not like shooting a movie where you can reset up. Right. It's a, it really, you have to be a, a stage magician to do it. <laughs> Believe me. Believe me. I, uh, you know, I, I was, I was pulling shots out like they were rabbits. I, uh, <laughs> well, you know, because the, there were, there were eight people in some scenes sometime. The first thing I always tried to do with the four cameras, because I couldn't get everybody at every moment. I tried to get the jokes on the first pass mm. and then save the reaction shots for the pickups. Now, what about that? That means that if you're doing a pickup shot later in the evening, which is, I think, usually after the audience has gone home, do you then have to do what they call sweeten the laughter to make bridges between shots where there's actual laughter from the audience and suddenly a shot where there's no laughter? you got to bridge that somehow. Would you have to sweeten the laughter? I, I was never in the sweetening room, but there were magicians who, there was a guy who had a machine, the laugh machine, you know. Yeah. It was famous. I, 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 his name escapes me now. I but think I worked with that guy. I'm sure. He had buttons. He was like a typewriter. And he would laugh know? along with the show. He'd, 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 <laughs> he'd, 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 there'd be a, a little minor joke, and he'd go, ha, 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 ha. And then a bigger joke, ha, 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 ha. And meanwhile, he's put, turning buttons, different kinds of laughter from different parts of an audience. Now, you know what he told me? I'm not sure it was the same guy you worked with, but what he told me was that the laughs he was using for, were from one particular show done by Jack Benny in the 40s. Oh, my God. So that audience is still laughing at television today. <laughs> you know, you, I'm suddenly for some reason reminded of censors. I guess the laugh track made me think of the other imposition by the networks, which was the so-called standards and practices department who would complain about language and situations. You you sort of opened some doors about language. Did, was that in, in the context of fighting with the network about it, or did they just say okay? Uh, Will and Grace was, we were blasphemous. We were blasphemous, but uh, it was all euphemisms. Mm. We did, euphemisms are funnier than the actual word. So, you know, because the audience is not only laughing at the euphemism, they're laughing at the choice of the euphemism. Yes. You know, so on Will and Grace, we could get away with it so much because those four characters were as innocent as the day was long. The actors who played them were so, you know, Jack, a character who slept with every man in New York City, uh, you loved him. And Karen, a pill-popping alcoholic, you loved her. You loved Megan. She could do the most dastardly jokes in the world, and you'd laugh and you forgave her. Carla on, on Cheers would, was a horrible human being. <laughs> but, you you know, you laughed because you saw her plight. And uh, uh, we've had a few censor fights, but, uh, you know, they're not as bad as they used to be. And I noticed as well, the more the ratings went up, 
the more, <laughs> the more the censorship went down. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That when we were starting, when we were in our first season, I think, there was a big complaint from the network that Radar had a line where he was saying that he didn't know about something, that he said, I'm a virgin to that, sir. I'm a virgin about that, meaning I don't know anything about it. There was no sexual connotation whatsoever. They said, you cannot say the word virgin. <laughs> so the next week, Larry Gelbart wrote a scene in which I'm talking to a soldier, and I say, where are you from, son? He says, the Virgin Islands, sir. <laughs> You know, one of the stories I love from the book, because I've, as a young actor, had to go in to auditions and you want to dress like the character, you want to be like the character. (laughs) You hope that somehow walking in, they'll want you to play the part. And you had Danny DeVito coming in to audition for this cynical, mean guy. And he walks in the room and what does he do? He takes a script and throws it on the table and he says, who wrote this shit? <laughs> Everybody knew they had the guy as soon as he did that. And and the other great audition story is Chris Lloyd for I don't Reverend know Jim. Yeah, it's in the book. Chris Lloyd comes in to read for Reverend Jim. Uh, he was uh, uh, he was in one show in, uh, in the first season. He marries... He performs a ceremony to marry Lotka to a hooker so Lotka can stay in the country. Lotka was Andy Kaufman. He was a foreigner. Yeah. Chris Lloyd comes in for the audition with ratty sneakers, holes in his blue jeans, uh, a shirt open to his navel, uh, a jeans jacket, his hair completely a mess, and does that voice, the Reverend Jim voice, and we all go, oh my God! And so we hired him. On the, we hired him when he left. Left called his agent, hired him. He showed up for rehearsal for the reading, and the first, uh, and all the days after that, in the same outfit. <laughs> he didn't want to lose the job. <laughs> he didn't want to lose the job. It's like Alan, as you were saying, actors. Uh, it's it's incredible. Uh, oh, just to finish the Chris Lloyd story, he showed up uh, uh, all five days in the same outfit, and then uh, on 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 taxi, we always had an after show party. Yeah. On the after show party, he comes in with a nice white shirt, clean jeans, a jacket. His hair is his hair is completely combed. So, but I, I was going to say, in 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 auditioning actors, if you have an actor for a callback. They invariably wear the same outfit they wore for the original <laughs> yes, audition. Right. Well, you don't know what what the reason is you're being called back for. <laughs> I, I guess so, but I've seen that I've seen that so many times. It's amazing. <laughs> Makes you wonder about their confidence, probably. I know. Well, this has been so much fun. I'm running out of time, but we always end our show with seven quick questions. And they invite seven quick answers. Are you game for that? I am. They're in a general way to do with communication. What do you wish you really understood? The world. Well, that was quick. You said quick answer. Yeah, that was good. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? 
Uh, in this day and age, I don't. Got it. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? How did you become an actor? Oh, that's interesting. Why was that strange? Because if you don't know the answer to that, you'll never you shouldn't be an actor. <laughs> <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker? Uh, turn on the FM station in my head. <laughs> you keep one handy, right? <laughs> Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you've never met before. How do you start up a genuine conversation? Hi, I'm Bruce Springsteen. You? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> What gives you confidence? My balls. Huh. Last question. What book changed your life? Oh, wow. Catcher in the Rye. Hmm. Why? So different than anything I'd ever read in my life. Well, this has been really fun talking with you, Jimmy. Thank you for taking the time, and good luck with the book. I appreciate that, and there, your dad's in the book, as you know. I know. I love the yes. reference to him. Did you meet my dad? Yes. And in fact, one night we were at dinner with your dad, and he did something similar to what you say in the book. And you said that he said, people ask me how I see the world in such a strange way. And he said, most people see the world this way. And he had his glasses on straight. And then he put his glasses on cockeyed and said, I see the world <laughs> that way. Right? <laughs> right. Well, the night I was with him, he he did put his glasses on cockeyed, and he said, I'm a friend of Picasso's. <laughs> and then it might have been the first time he tried that cockeyed glasses <laughs> I thing. never heard that. Yeah, and he said, I, that, that's pretty funny. I think I'll use that on What's My Line this week. Oh. When you knew him, were you aspiring to be an actor? I was aspiring in every direction. I was aspiring to be an actor and a writer. And I actually had the nerve to suggest a rewrite of one of his lines in Guys and Tom. Really? And he, he was very kind and gentle with me. I'm sure. I'm sure. I, mean, I was only 15, he, so I, I had the same kind of confidence you had. Uh -huh. <laughs> wow. Those are stories. I never heard those stories. That's so wonderful. Because I don't yeah. know, there are not very many people who who knew my dad, who are still around. And oh, I admired him so much. He wrote such funny songs. I know. He, he, the one that I remember was, this is a song, in the. it's the type song where you say, my girl is better than your girl. Right. And the song was, I'm in love with the girl with the three blue eyes. Right. Right. He was, he... There's a litany of those. He wrote a lot of titles, too, without... Without songs know, to go with them? Yeah, he wrote, How Are You Going to Keep Them Down on the Farm After They've Seen the Farm? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was terrific. Oh, God. And so was your dad. I, you know, yeah. Both kids from Showbiz's Fathers. It's, uh, isn't who it, succeeded. Yeah, isn't it's, that amazing? Yeah, that is amazing. It's, not, it's not a it's not a straight path. People think no. it's a, it, it, you have the the problem of being in the shadow of the older guy. You can't make it if you don't have the guts. If you don't have the goods underneath, you're not going to make it. So yeah, 
Well, congratulations on what you've done. And thank you for so much for this conversation. It was really fun. Thank you, Alan. I appreciate it. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. James Burroughs has directed over 75 pilot episodes that have gone on to become series and over a 1,000 episodes altogether, more than any other director in history. Along the way, he's picked up 45 Emmy nominations and 11 wins. His book is called Directed by James Burroughs, Five Decades of Stories from the Legendary Director of Taxi, Cheers, Frasier, Friends, Will and & Grace, and more. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with the legendary pianist Emmanuel Axe. He's one of the giants among classical musicians. For almost 50 years, he's been making music with his old friend, the great cellist Yo-Yo Ma, recently in some unusual venues. You know, when the pandemic started, we were just sitting around, basically, in, in the Brookshires, where, where we both work every summer. And Yo-Yo thought, we should try and, and, and do something. I said, yeah, great, I'll call Stefan. And Stefan says, I have just the thing. I have a huge flatbed truck, and we're going to put a Clavinova, one of those little Yamaha pianos on it. And Yo-Yo has a fiberglass cello connected to a speaker. And the two of us sat on the back of this and went to various parking lots and played for, for UPS people, for nurses and doctors, for firemen. And, you know, it was just to give them a break, you know, 20 minutes that come out and watch us. And, you know, I, I hope they enjoyed it. Pianist Emmanuel Axe chatting with me from a concert tour in Europe next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. 
Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.